and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Can you believe it is a year this week since the start of the coronavirus restrictions in Britain? I was saying last night that although it's sort of laughable now that we were being told at that time that we could turn the tide on this in 12 weeks, I'm actually really glad we didn't know then that that wasn't the case and that the restrictions would sort of roll on through last year and a year on we'll be back in lockdown and staring down many of the same cancellations as we were looking at a year ago. I'm, I'm pleased that we didn't know that was the situation a year ago or uh, I think that would have been incredibly depressing. But hopefully onwards and upwards now, the vaccine rollout is going well and things really are starting to go the right way. Our guest this week is the British Dressage List 1 judge, Richard Baldwin, who talked to my colleague Polly Bryan about what judges are really looking for. A horse that's working happily with the rider and they work in one partnership together and I think this is the essence of our sport and I think this is what we should be encouraging our sport, a sense of harmony and love for what we do. We'll also be rounding up the week's news from the latest cancellations due to equine herpes to new research into strangles. And finally, Alan Davies, groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin, gives us his secret tips for pulling and plaiting horses' manes. My plaits have been on the front of the horse and hound many times, so um, I have to make sure they are tip-top. So get the manes in good condition now, and then it'll make your life easier later. Looking forward to hearing more from Alan later. For now, buckle up your bridle and let's get started. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hounds, and welcome to today's guest interview. Today, I'm joined by Richard Baldwin. Richard is an FEI eventing judge and List One British dressage judge, as well as an advanced dressage rider and trainer. Richard, hello, how are you? Hello, all good, thank you. Excellent. So with the relaxing of lockdown almost upon us, I imagine that you as a judge are as excited as riders are to get out to competitions again. Yes, I'm very excited to actually see horses actually live. I've <laughs> watched many horses over the last months on the screen on the computer, but I haven't seen any competing live for a while now. I can imagine. I mean, how difficult is it to, to judge virtually you know, to, to do things differently as we all have done the last year. I think like with a lot of um, businesses and companies and places that we've had to just adapt our systems to trying to move everything online to be mm. able to keep up with our own CPD and our own sort of um, development as judges and also being able to run some competitions online to um, encourage riders to stay training and focused with their horses at home when they can't leave and go to competitions. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's great. There's been so many opportunities for people to, um, you know, stay motivated and, and, and keep working with their horses, even if it's not quite what we're all used to. The um, the wonderful Stephen Clark wrote a column for our dressage section recently, and he mentioned how important it is for judges to keep their eye in, in the same way it is for riders. Is that something you found during the pandemic and all these periods of lockdown without any real life shows that it's been helpful to keep your eye in in other ways? Yeah, we've um, been quite lucky that um, if, if there's an upside to what's happening at the moment is that uh, many of our top tutor judges, our top FEI judges have not been able to go away 
judging and they're at home with a lot more spare time on their hands. So we've been doing a lot of training online with um, using the Zoom platform and um, using um, YouTube links to actually train our eyes in and just keep our eyes in, be doing more training. If anything, I think we've done far more training and CPD style work since lockdown than we did beforehand because there was just not the availability of time to mm. be able to do it. And now we have plenty of time to do that. So if anything, I think we'll all come out bursting at the seams ready to be um, <laughs> judging and hopefully on the on our best judging skills. I always think that one of the things that's most impressive about dressage judging, and I'm sure other people would agree with me, is how fast you guys are required to both observe what is happening in the arena in front of you, assess it in your own mind using lots of factors, and then translate that into a mark and often a comment very, very quickly. How how difficult is it to learn to do that? I imagine you only really develop that skill through a lot of practice. Yeah, I think it's it's years of watching and understanding horses. I think you have a slight advantage when you've been involved as a, a rider or a trainer with horses as well, because yeah. you've had your eyes in on um, horses for that time as well. And it's just hours and in the, in the seat, watching horses, understanding horses and learning from the best. I've been very lucky during my training that as a rider, I've had some of the best trainers in the country and as a judge I've had some great some of the greatest mentors in the world we've had we've got probably the best FEI judges in our own country um, mm. with the likes of Stephen and Isabel and Clive and Peter and we're very lucky having those over here so yes and judging can be quite a lonely place at times because you're on your own sat there and this is why getting with other judges and discussing is really essential for our own development of our own skills as well because otherwise we sit on our own and we judge the way that we feel that we should judge and sometimes maybe we could tweak our own judging to become better and by sitting in a group and doing the training we can develop our skills with mm. other people's inputs as well. Yeah, of course. I'm I'm always fascinated to chat to judges about what catches their eye in the dressage arena. What are the sort of particular things that you find yourself looking for in every test, you know, across across lots of different levels? Um for me the um the most important thing I, I look for is the harmony of the training. Um I think this is the most important thing. We we're, we're there because we love our horses and um, we love training our horses and when you see a harmonious picture needless to say whether or not they are the biggest moving horse or the smallest moving horse in the class what is really appealing to me as a judge is the harmony side i look more towards a harmonious picture between the rider and the horse and that's what brings me to the higher marks and that's what makes me enjoy watching somebody yeah. a horse that's working happily with the rider and they work in one partnership together and I think this is the essence of our sport and I think this is what we should be encouraging our sport a sense of harmony and love for what we do 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the last sort of 10 years or so, Harmony has really, you know, people are a lot more aware of, of judges looking for Harmony and judges have started to prioritise it, I think, more than perhaps in previous years. I know a lot of people attribute that to um, to Carl and Charlotte and the sort of effect of London 2012. Is it something that you've seen, you know, g- growing over the past decade in terms of, of priority? Yeah, I think I feel really lucky at the age I am because... I've seen for myself the biggest growth within the sport. I've seen a real trend changing over the years. And we went from very nice, well-trained, um, sort of average kind of horses many years ago that got to Grand Prix, to then we went through a stage where we were then almost obsessing over trying to get more and more movement from the horses and more and more elasticity. Right. and more and more uphill tendency um, that we maybe lost a little bit our way in the submission side and the harmony side um, to be able to create this big movement that we then wanted to see. Mm. There'll, there'll obviously be a huge number of riders across the country at the moment who are absolutely chomping at the bit to get back in the arena, get back in action, put all their, you know, lockdown work into um, into practice. Are there any sort of golden nuggets of advice that you'd share with riders? Perhaps something you wish every rider would do or think about more when they present themselves in front of a judge? I think for myself is that we we concentrate a lot as riders on developing the way of going of the horse. And I think when we go to our trainers, we spend a lot of time developing um, the horse, developing the paces, the way of going. But actually to sit down and understand the tests we're actually going to be riding, where the movements start, when the, where the movements finish, so that we're not throwing away silly marks by just not such good test riding. I mean, the one, I mean, Charlotte, has lots of amazing attributes but the one thing she knows and the one thing she does very well whenever you judge her is she knows where a movement starts finishes and it starts where the middle of it is and where the finish is and she is accurate with that riding and i think the one thing that i would say to riders is is that yes we've had all this time spent to develop our horses further to further their education their balance to develop their paces and then with competition starting again is really to when you enter the competitions look at the tests and know the movements where they start finish see we we're not throwing away silly marks here and there um just for the fact of not really sort of understanding or taking on the test um in its entirety yeah i think that's really really good advice because it's they're easily achievable marks if if you put that effort into sort of learning how to ride the movements really accurately aren't they yeah definitely i mean this there's just what can be frustrating in a way from a judging point of view is when you see that a rider is riding with beautiful harmony the horse is very elastic very relaxed very athletic and you're wanting to give the higher points but you're having to deduct maybe 0.5 of a mark one mark here and there because maybe the circle isn't quite in the right place Mm. or that something's not done quite accurately from where it's supposed to start and finish. And even, for instance, like an entry and a halt, that it can be a beautiful canter entry, beautiful transitions, and the rider rides so wonderfully to create um, the points that they're going to gain. 
from doing this movement, but then they don't actually hold to X. And then you're having to take <laughs> yeah. little marks off. And mm. it's always, as a judge, I always feel a bit sad for doing that because I want to really appreciate the training element and the harmony element of the picture in front. And when these sort of little blips in tests are done where actually maybe the rider hasn't quite understood where it starts and finishes or where accurately something needs to be done it's just a, a shame to have to be able to deduct from that yeah absolutely i can i can imagine it really is of course one of the highlights of 2020 that we did get to enjoy was the um the young horse championships that were able to go ahead um at kiso in october and i think you judged the selection trials for the world breeding championships for young horses that were of course due to happen uh in december in germany but were sadly cancelled um we have in this week's issue of the magazine an interview with Sarah Longworth from the Waverley Stud. Uh, she bred Waverley Fellini, the winner of the five-year-old selection trial at Kiso with Greg Sims and also the age championship itself. I just wonder if you can think back to judging him and what it was that impressed you so much. Yeah, I think with the um, young horses, we're, we're, we're less concentrating on little blips that might happen here or there because the format of the young horse classes is um, a, a commanded route at the qualifiers and then at the final it's a test that they follow and we use an actual marking sheet which just it's completely different to judging a dressage test so we're not judging movement for movement we're judging um, the trot as a mark we're judging the walk as the mark the canter as a mark um, Greg on this particular young horse rides rides with such beautiful balance and allows the horse to just naturally show the horse off to its natural ability and the horse has got such a, a amazing athleticism through the body has a, a a good range of looseness through the joints and what we're looking for and what impressed me most with this horse is that the natural mechanics of the horse right. and the horse's natural uphill balance just shows all the um ingredients we want to see to be able to um, develop this horse, to be going up and up and up through the levels up to, to reach the highest um, dressage levels that we can go to. At the same time, we have a very good submission from this horse as well, whereas the horse is always um, beautiful into the contact with a very good straightness, always very obedient and willing to do all the movements and with relaxation as well mm. so the horse just shows itself off so, so very naturally within the gates and all three of the gates are of a high quality and um, the most important thing of judging the young horse is actually the correctness and the regularity of all three gates and there is complete clarity of all three gates with this particular horse and adding all those together with three com correct and regular gates with a great athleticism and looseness and uphill tendency with great articulation of the joints as well we then are able to then add that in with the harmony submission side to then come to our perspective score where we can be really high because the um young horse shows such a potential for the future when we're taking into account all that the boxes that are ticked on the training scale and we do this according to age as well so for the age of this particular horse it ticks all the boxes for what we want to be seeing um as the horse travels up through the levels 
Yeah, and of course, you know, in the young horse classes, as you as you mentioned, you're not looking for the finished article. You're not looking for the horse that's going to go straight into a national championship and, and win it. You're looking for that potential, aren't you? Yeah, so we are looking at the overall. So we can, with the young horses, we can quite understand that there might be a little spook here or there, mm. or a horse might have a slight overreaction here or there. So we can ignore the little tiny sort of, blips that might happen and what we're looking is actually the 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 raw potential of the horse actually looking at um the horse's elastic natural gates and the fact that it's being trained in a correct way according to the age of the horse um to enable the capabilities of it reaching the highest levels of dressage for us would you have any advice for riders who are thinking they have a, a really nice five-year-old six-year-old who they might want to target um the young horse series with in 2021 i think the young horses i mean the young horse classes are great for being able to not have to follow a test and yeah. for just getting some feedback and if i had a very nice five-year-old i mean the young horses i've taken before I take to the um, national qualifiers. They're repaired, um, commanded routes. So you work with another horse. So you go into the arena with another horse, which is a great education for a horse to start going into an arena. I think sometimes when you have to start a young horse off and take them into an arena on their own, they can feel a bit frightened, some horses, and not yeah. very confident. But with this young horse class, and we have them as pairs, they can come in with a friend and go around with a friend and it really gives them and you can see a young horse grow in confidence even through five minutes of doing um, the test from there. And equally, it's, it's very nice to do this paired and just get some feedback from the judges that are coming um, to judge the classes just on where the judges feel where the walk, trot and canter is. And yeah. I think... A lot of the time we think about these competitions as being a competition, but you can think of these competitions as getting feedback for training as well. The, what we want to be doing as judges and what we try and encourage as judges is to give riders feedback on what we see in the, the trot, the walk, the canter, and where the horse is in the submission at the moment um, to give them some help to actually guide them to how to develop the horse better. So yeah. I think as your question with if you have a nice five-year-old i think it's a great way to um show the horse the competition arena and i think it's a great way of getting feedback on where the horse is um and some horses are um going to be young horse winners and some horses are going to be um nice horses that are still going to get to grand prix but some grand prix horses would not be young horse winners so it's nice to come in with your five-year-old and just get the feedback from the judges to see where your horse is and where you can go. And you may even be very happily surprised that um, you end up qualifying, going to a finals, <laughs> getting, to the, getting to the championships, mm. uh, achieving the scores for the World Breeding Championships and then going to the World Breeding Championships. Um, sometimes I think we don't always understand what we're sort of... Um, sat on as horses until we actually get some very experienced judges giving us the feedback on that. 
Yeah, I think I think you're right. And, you know, I speak to a lot of riders, actually, who who might have done really well in, in some young horse classes who are who are really surprised. And, and they were really going out there just to introduce the horse to the arena and, and, you know, ride in front of a judge. And actually, they've come out with with really good feedback. And, and it was actually a lot better than they were expecting. So, you know, obviously can work that way. So obviously we are looking ahead to uh, the season. It's getting getting un- underway a little bit later than uh, the normal, but hopefully very soon. What are you most looking forward to in 2021? Oh, for me, um, just I mean, just being live with horses, just being at live competitions. I've missed just having a live horse in front of me and judging. And um, I'm just happy to kind of get out and get everything going and get the. Um, the championships going through and just see how the horses have progressed. And I love each year you come out. And what I'd be excited about now is that everybody's had a lot of time at home to develop their horses. And I just love to see how that's come on with all the horses and see Mm -hmm. how they've developed during the time they've had off. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is set to be a really exciting year. Fingers crossed everything can go ahead as now planned. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Horse and Hound podcast, Richard. It's been really, really interesting to hear from you. It's been great to talk. Thank you very much. So I'm joined today by two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. So first of all, hello to Eleanor Jones, our news editor. How's it going with you, Eleanor? Yeah, it's all good. Uh, It seems to be raining every time I try and ride and then the sun comes out as soon as I get home and start work. Um, But yeah, looking forward to some shows and arena hire before too long. Yeah, not too long away now. I'm looking forward to getting back to riding as well. And we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are things going with you, Becky? I don't have much to report on as I'm still boringly injured, but um, yes, uh, Scotland got the go ahead for shows to get going again as well. So I'm feeling quite inspired and, you know, rooting for everyone else that'll be getting out and about soon. Oh, that's a very unselfish, uh, unselfish view to be taking. <laughs> I hope you're able to, uh, to to get your back back in action so you can uh, get back to riding and maybe enjoy yeah. some shows as well, Becky. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you are the woman following the EHV crisis for us, Becky. And we heard this week that the World Cup finals, which were due to run in Gothenburg in a couple of weeks' time, have now been cancelled as a result of that equine herpes outbreak. I have to say it's not a huge surprise. Every time I spoke to our dressage and show jumping editors about it, we kind of said, yeah, I mean, it's on our radar, but we're not going to really plan anything too much because we don't think it's going to happen. And very sadly, we were proved right. Can you update us on exactly what it was that led to that cancellation? Of course, like you say, perhaps not entirely surprising, but this stemmed from a few weeks ago, the FEI announced all international competition was off until the 28th of March. And it had been hoped the World Cup finals would still go ahead, but they were due to begin on the 31st of March, so just a couple of days after. But last week, this suspension was extended by an extra two weeks, taking us to 11th of April. So obviously this means the World Cup finals are off. But the organisers in the FAI have very much said it's about get, putting the safety of the horses first while this outbreak is ongoing. Hmm. And, and what's the latest from Valencia, which is where the outbreak was first reported? Well, since the outbreak started, 12 horses have died to date and 10 horses are 
currently receiving treatment in an equine hospital. But there has been some improvements reported and all the horses who are still at the venue are now off medication, which is great here. And some horses have now started travelling back to, I think, Belgium and France. They've started making their journeys. So it's certainly getting positive news. Hmm, okay, so hopefully people are being able to sort of get horses away from that that venue and, and away to quarantine at home or at suitable facilities. What else is happening around the world with horses sort of returning from tours and shows? So like you say, horses have been returning from different places. Um, we've got horses returning from Sunshine Tour in Spain and the Global Champions Tour in Doha. Now there has been some confirmed EHV cases in Belgium and France in horses returning. So all of these horses that were away competing have been blocked in the FEI database and that will be until necessary biosecurity measures are met and further testing is undertaken. Okay, so uh, no no competition, certainly for those horses for a while, even if uh, as and when shows do get up and running for other horses. And finally, what is the advice with regard to horses in the UK at the moment um, with regard to EHV? So David Rendell, chair of the British Equine Veterinary Association Health and Medicines Committee, said that understandably there is concern that horses returning to UK may carry the virus and spread infection. But to prevent this from happening, what he said is that it's essential returning competitors comply with the quarantine put out in place by British show jumping. And those returning, if they're quarantined effectively and we carry out the screening, then the risk to the wider UK horse population is very small. So I think the takeaway message is not to panic. So good biosecurity is important and obviously following the rules if you are bringing horses back from abroad, but certainly sort of your average UK horse owner doesn't need to to freak out about this at the moment, but uh, obviously be vigilant and, and practice good biosecurity. Thank you, Becky. Eleanor, I'm coming over to you next. You've been looking at a new study into strangles. What is this all about? Well, that was the question <laughs> because um, we were sent over some information last week and I thought, oh, this sounds very interesting, but I'm not entirely sure what it's saying. Um, so people that were part of the study and funded the study uh, very kindly explained it to us. And what it is, is they, they it's a very long project and they've been tracking the Strangles bacterium across the world. So um, using standard testing, different strains of the bacterium look almost identical, but by using this state-of-the-art DNA sequencing technique, they can analyze the DNA and therefore they can see slight difference and track uh, different variants across the world. So um, um, interestingly, uh, the, the strains that are in Europe at the moment emerged during the First World War because of the large number of horses who were mixing. But and uh, Dr. Andrew Waller, who I was speaking to, was comparing it to the ways that we've got different variants of the coronavirus. Um, different strains have developed and some might be more transmissible than others or more resistant to vaccination, for example. Oh gosh, it sounds exactly like different coronavirus variants. I feel like we've all become far more experts in viruses and diseases over the past year. Um, and Eleanor, I know that Red Wings are one of the organisations who've been helping with this research. What has their involvement been? Yeah, so Red Wings have done a huge amount um, trying to stamp out the stigma around strangles and, and organising, you know, raising awareness that because they had an outbreak there themselves in 2015. And interestingly, they, they, they'd they had some mares that had come in and they'd been screaming screened clear of strangles and then this outbreak happened but the analysis of the DNA showed that the source wasn't those mares it was another foal which 
then gives them the information that actually the screening procedures were fine, but that maybe biosecurity elsewhere needed to be looked at more. Okay. And you just mentioned vaccination earlier. Is that something that there's a hope of for strangles? Yeah, we we have done some coverage of strangles vaccination in the past. And actually, Dr. Waller, who I spoke to, is um, working on a vaccination at the moment. And it is hoped that that might be released this year. Gosh, that would be uh, be something of a breakthrough, I think. Thank you, Eleanor. Mm. Becky, coming back to you for our final story that we're going to discuss today, which is about equine-assisted therapy. It's known as EAT. I assume we have to say EAT, not EAT, because that's something different. It's what I like to do most of the time. But equine-assisted therapy, EAT, what, what's developing in this area? What's your story about? So a new register is being developed by a working party and this working party has been formed by individuals from the charity Horseback UK and the Riding for the Disabled and Heartbreak College. Now the register is for people and organisations that offer this type of therapy work. The register, it would be voluntary, but the aim is to essentially create a code of practice people would abide by and really make sure that horse welfare is being met you know, standards and qualifications are in place and just providing some governance in this area because at present there isn't any. Okay, and is that something that sort of the sector is is welcoming, having a bit more formality around what they do? Certainly the riding for the disabled, this is something they've wanted for a long time and I think especially because we're often talking about vulnerable individuals when it comes to this type of work and the plan is to consult with the industry as a whole before the register is created. And if people were going to be on the register, what might they have to do? You mentioned a code of practice. Yes, so the plan would be that people would sign up to the register and agree to abide by this code of practice once it's in place and they would then be able to say that, you know, they're a member and interestingly in the future the working group would like to develop an accreditation process and there's also scope for an academic side to be developed introducing some more formal qualification routes for sort of equine assisted therapy. Okay, so sort of small steps there that could grow into something quite large and and really formalise this sector and and improve what's being done in it. It sounds like a good development. Thank you, Becky, and thank you, Eleanor, for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF. Prepare to be perfect and keep the wisps and strays at bay with Plat It Up spray from NAF. It helps to deliver show-stopping plaits every time. Plat It Up spray is an essential part of Alan Davies' show preparation. So now it's time to hear from Supergroom Alan Davies. Over to you, Alan. Hello, everybody. Um, Alan here again. Um, a topic I've been asked to talk about, and I'm asked to talk about many times, is uh, manes and tails and plaiting. Um, Obviously, at the moment, um, the last year or so, it's been difficult with not so many competitions, but um, I find these are the times where you need to make sure the mains are in tip-top condition. So when we do start competing again, um, they're ready um, to be plattered. I don't like to trim the mains right before a show. I like them to be ready to plat and they need to be just slightly thinner at the end so that I can, when I plat it down, I can fold under and get the, all the ends in. So if I trim them too close to the show, then they're going to be too thick at the ends. 
obviously you have to cater for individual horses, their individual types of mane and hair. Um, so that's the that's the main thinking. Obviously, if they're thicker, um, sort of like if you're a horse like Utopia, who's a stallion with a thick crest, and they get much more wiry hair than the others, then I will have to actually occasionally pull his mane. Um, whereas horses like Vallegro, Niptark, Mountstrom Freestyle, Vogue, they've actually got quite fine hair, and so I tend to trim those with the scissors so I let them grow down as long as possible without getting moaned at and then I will back comb and then trim off with the scissors um, but have the scissors on an angle so it doesn't come out too cut and too straight so you can actually kind of feather the end of the mane and then you can have a nice straight line and have the nice the main nice and even but like I say on the end I want it slightly feathered and slightly fine so that when you plat down for plaiting and fold under and get all the ends in um, it's much easier so I, what I tend to do is not trim them too close to the show and also at this time of year obviously they're being turned out and they might have uh, neck covers on during the day or at night in the stable as well so you have to make sure you keep them really clean and keep the neck cover clean so you try not to rub out any um, hair especially at sort of at the bottom of the, the base of the neck they can sometimes get a bit thin and then the plaits tend to fade out and you'll almost end up with no plaits and especially when I'm going to the winter shows, to the World Cup shows abroad and things. Um, I need a full neck of plaits, otherwise I get moaned at uh, by the riders. So um, it's quite important to really look after the mane, keep it clean, um, try not to brush it out too much. Try and I tend to use a comb on the mane on a day-to-day -day basis to get any shavings out in the morning and then wet it down. Um, Charlotte and Carl like their manes all on the off side. They don't like them on the near side. So if we have horses arriving and the manes are all over the place, then I have to do a, a bit of a job on those. Um, and I will um, get them over onto the correct side. And then I'll do sort of like, I'll bunch them up and then I'll do a half plat. So I'll do about two or three turns and then put an elastic band round and then leave the rest of the mane loose to try and train them over and then I let them grow as long as possible before I then um, trim them and try and keep them thick and long and keep them on the, the right side so then I can plat on the correct side how, how the riders want them. Um, and as in terms of plaiting I don't like massive plaits. I like um, them to be neat and tidy with a little bit of wing on the side just to enhance the top of the neck. I mean, generally all our horses have pretty good necks anyway, so you don't have to worry too much about all the showing techniques of trying to raise the plaits to make the neck look better and things like that. Um, Carl and Charlotte like their plaits immaculate. I tend to do mine with elastic bands. Um, I plat down, turn over, put an elastic band around the end, and then I put another elastic band around and then keep it quite open and then roll the plat 
through um, through the band and then you twist the band at the top and put it underneath so you can't see it so they actually look like they've been stitched in but I find that's a lot nicer for the mane it's they're easier to take out you don't get the risk of snipping any mane with the scissors when you're um, undoing the the um, thread so I tend to use um, a plaiting spray the when I'm plaiting down to try and make sure it's as sleek as possible the hair is kept really sleek and neat into the plait um, and then start slightly looser and then get really really tight at the end and then when you roll up you can put them up underneath um, and you get a lovely effect then. And on the topic of um, how where you stand for plaiting people quite often ask me that. Um, I've got some steps that I have that are adjustable. Um, you need to make sure they're safe and then you're not going to fall off them and um, the horses can't get their horses, their legs tangled in them or anything. But I like to be about eye level with the top of the neck. I don't like to be too high because then the plaits tend to come out sticking up a little bit. So I like to be eye level. Um, and if you're too low, then they're trying to be a bit droopy. So um, I like nice perky plaits right at eye level. So um, I tend to stand about two steps up on my steps and then um, people quite often ask me about the number of plaits um, and it's quite a funny topic really because um, there's sort of like old showing um, superstitions about having a certain number of plaits having even and odd personal preference personal superstitions um, but it's an ongoing thing um, and of course with the dressage it's quite important, the plaits are quite important and my plaits have been on the front of the horse and hound many times so um, I have to make sure they are tip top so um, yeah big tip is to get the manes in good condition now um, and then it will make your life easier later. Thank you Alan. Next week, we'll be back with the final instalment of Alan's mini-series, when he'll be talking about managing competition horses who live out. We also have a super special interview for you when we welcome David Broom, a five-time Olympian and the winner of 14 championship medals in show jumping. In addition, we'll bring you all the week's news as normal, so make sure you tune in. And don't forget, if you'd like priority access to the podcast on Thursdays before public release on Friday, you can get that early access by joining our Horse and Hound Plus service. Visit horseandhound.co.uk slash hhplus for more information. Thank you for joining us on the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.